welcome to another BritFleece.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright. This is the FrightFest 2019 preview series. Um, and today's guest is Paddy Murphy. Good evening. Hey, Stuart. How are you doing? I'm all right. And I'm going to say good morning for those people that uh, maybe downloaded this podcast. And it's the AM when they're doing it. Um, I'm very well. Now, we've come to talk about your film that's playing at Frightfest, which is The Perished. So before we go into any detail on that, do you want to tell, give people a brief synopsis to what The Perished is? Uh, yeah, cool. I'll, I'll kind of, I'll try and come up with something a bit different from, from what's listed on the Frightfest page. I could just read it off, but like, no. <laughs> yeah, The Perished is uh, kind of a, a horror that deals with social issues. Um, it's set in Ireland and it's about a young woman uh, named Sarah Decker who finds herself with an unwanted pregnancy and basically uh, because abortion is illegal in Ireland uh, she has to go to the UK uh, for the procedure and when she comes back there's a lot of stigma and shame around it so she can't tell anyone um, and her friend, uh, her best friend kind of brings her to a secluded co country home to help her recover but as she's recovering, we get, we get the feeling that there's something in the house that is kind of uh, attracted to the idea of her as a mother. Uh, and it's, it's I, I'll kind of leave it at that because there's a little bit more I could go into, but that's probably enough to set it up. No, um, no, no, that's, that's, that's more than enough information. I think that, <laughs> I think that there's the, you've, got, you've got the main character and you've got the sense of dread which uh, we get plenty of evidence as to what's going on as we watch it. Um, now, um, before we talk about you making this film, and in honour of the 20th anniversary of Frightfest, I'm asking everybody, what do they remember of their 20th year? Now, we can talk about your birthday party, or something that happened during your 20, as it were, that, uh, that springs to mind, whether that be a bit of advice from Grandma, Something some that happened in work or whatever you want. What for? What are you going to draw on for your twentieth anniversary memory? Um, it's funny because yeah, I was thinking that like uh, earlier, I was thinking about this and I was thinking that there was nothing for my birthday originally. But the more I thought about it, actually, no, my birthday is always something to kind of remember slash forget because uh, my birthday is New Year's Eve. So oh. <laughs> there's always a party. Um, and what I what I remember most about my twentieth birthday was that uh, we came out of a nightclub. It was when was this? It was probably two thousand three, two thousand four, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we came out of a nightclub, and it was about four in the morning, five in the morning, and we were trying to get home, and no taxis were available. So me and my friend, really drunk, decided it would be a great idea to walk back to my house, which is about maybe ten miles from where this nightclub was. Yo. <laughs> and about halfway on that walk, the, the first five miles were easy because we were drunk. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. for the last five miles, we started to sober up and it was absolutely horrible. <laughs> um, so that's, and I remember getting home about eight, yeah, about eight, nine in the morning and my mother just being like, what did you do? Because <laughs> I was just in an absolute state, as you can imagine. No, totally, so, totally. I've, I've, not yeah, done that, on, I've not done on New Year's Eve. I did it. I did. I did a similar stupid idea in Cornwall. I was at a festival which was. Uh, I used to manage a band called Tokyo Dragons, and we were playing at this festival called Tapestry Goes West. So everyone's dressed up as cowboys, and it's it's it was actually in like a model western town. So they built like a western town on this hillside in Cornwall. It sounds uh, amazing. It was amazing. It was truly amazing, and. Uh, but I'd, I'd booked a B&B &B rather than camped on site the first time I went to this festival, because I went a few times, but the first time. So the only way in the arse end of, of, of Cornwall was to walk back. <laughs> now, the road it was on was quite a famous road, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, but I, I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll ring my wife up and leave a voicemail for her every time I remember, just so she knows I'm all right. So, because I made the mistake of telling her, I'm walking home along a dark lane. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I had to tell her. And at, at midpoint, there's a petrol station, which has got all its lights on, which was freaky anyway. And then I remembered when I got there, because I would, I, like, you like your story, this is like the midpoint where you sober up. <laughs> I'm stood outside You're a petrol station where two old age pensioners were murdered, which is why the lights oh, are Jesus. on. And. Oh, it, 
And I'm telling this on a voicemail. What I didn't do was when I got to the B&B is leave a voicemail to say, I'm home safe. <laughs> uh, don't worry about me. Ignore all the other stupid messages. I'm an idiot. I just went to the B&B, <laughs> went to bed and woke up to like a 7 million missed calls going, where the frig are you? What are you? Da, 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 da. Yeah. She, so, yeah. she probably has she seen Switchblade Romance? She probably thought it was like the the Petra Station scene. In exactly. Well, that, I'd seen it, so I'm I'm kind of you know I'm thinking that. Uh, but anyway, yes, no, uh, kids, don't walk home. Wait for a taxi. That's my lesson. Exactly. Right, sir. So yeah. let's get back to the film before before we bore everybody's senses with my holiday my holiday adventures. Um, so uh, the perished. You wrote and directed it. It's your it's your second feature film, as I've learned two minutes before we started. Yeah. Um, trust me to uh, come with bad facts. But anyway, uh, we'll get on to what that meant in terms of this film first. But tell me, as the writer, what was your kind of what was the nugget of the idea that sort of that led you to sort of think, I know what I'll do. I'll meld the sort of national guilt towards how children out of wedlock were treated. And the supernatural. Yeah, um, it's a mad one because the way it actually originated was genuinely almost nothing to do with what it eventually became, as, as I suppose these things often happen. Yeah. But uh, the very first thought I had, and it was, it was you've seen the film, so you'll get this, and it's not yeah. really a spoiler, but the very first thought I had was, imagine if you were in bed and you were suffering with sleep paralysis and something was in the corner of the room and it just crawled towards you very slowly... And crawled into bed and just started to like cuddle you, not attack you, not scream at you, not you know just cuddle beside you, and you couldn't move or do anything about it. Um, so I kind of talked to my my friend confidant. Uh, he's the producer on the parish and DP Barry Fay. Me and him have done everything together. Like we've done all all the films we've nearly made have been made together. Yeah. And I kind of said to him. I basically brought this up when we were having these kind of like weekly meetings and I said, I just had this idea for a thing where, and straight away he was like, he started shaking and kind of quivering. And I was like, Ooh, I like that. Like, cause he's not really a big horror guy. He's getting mm. more into it as we've been doing more horror stuff, but he wasn't at the time. And he was kind of like, Oh, I don't like that. That's horrible. That's, that's a really awful idea. Um, so when somebody says awful idea to me, that's what sets me off. Well, no, no. <laughs> when you describe it like you do, you're right. There is, there is there is definitely something about trying to create the situation, create the moment that culminates with what you describe. It's because uh, it is a frightening prospect. I think anybody listening to this can relate to the idea of being unable to move and the unexplainable lying down next to you and giving you a cuddle. Yeah, and and the, obviously that kind of led to then I I, I wanted to to write something uh, with that scene in it, and the mm. first thought that popped into my head was, well, you know, what kind of a creature would want to cuddle you, not attack? You know, it's not going to be a werewolf, presumably, and it's not going to, you know, like what kind of a creature would do this? Mm. And this was right around the time that um, this was right around the time that the referendum here in Ireland had been announced to uh, uh, repeal the Eighth Amendment, which yeah. is all to do with um, women's rights and stuff here. So, um. It was everywhere, and suddenly, and plus there was the or the kind of discovery of the the mass baby graves um, at Magdalen Laundries, and um, so that kind of stuff was there in you know every newspaper I saw or every uh, all over Facebook and social media. So straight away that kind of idea crept into my head of well, what would happen if you know if if a spirit wanted to cuddle you, it might just be you know the spirits of of babies looking mm. for somebody especially if it's a young woman babies looking for a mother so then yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Was the, that was the kind of genesis of the idea um but i must say that even before that uh that was where the writing started but before that after i'd made my first film, i kind of was at the point where i was thinking of just giving up i was kind of because it didn't do a lot um of business so i was kind of a bit concerned that like can i keep doing this and and make it a career or you know um, and it was actually at Fright Fest. I was outside the Phoenix, and Joe Lynch, who directed Mayhem and uh, Point Blank, and you know, and of course Wrong Turn Two, he, um, me, and him were having a chat upstairs, and he kind of gave me a lot of encouragement, and was like, because I was saying I'm thinking of giving up filmmaking, and he was like, No, don't. Like, what are you doing? You know, you've made a feature film that's more than than a lot of people. You you need to go home. You need to start writing a new script. You need. To, and it was it was crazy because I've had I had that talk from like Barry and everyone back home, 
but it was just so different coming from Joe because I was such a big fan of his work and mm. um, he's just such a wonderful guy. And so that was the very beginning of like, okay, when I get back home, I'm going to start writing a script. And then I came back and had the idea for the, the sleep paralysis scene. And then we went from there. <laughs> no, fantastic. That's really, it's really interesting to hear how, how just a sort of an arresting, horrifying image can, can, can do so much for, for taking, for, for giving birth to a film, pun intended. Um, <laughs> um, now, pun appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so this is two thousand. If I if I rewind to two thousand and eighteen, um, and I'm talking to Ashley and Clark, a Devil's Doorway, I can kind yeah. of almost sort of think. I'll start the questions. I'll start asking the same questions to uh, to Paddy now, because because you because <laughs> there's, there's clearly. Clearly is, and unsurprisingly, it's not, I'm not, this isn't an accusation. There clearly is a kind of national, uh, consciousness wrestling with what's been, what the country's gone through in the last sort of three or four years. You know, like you say, the mass, the mass grave discovery coupled with the amendment that give women, I'm right, give the right to have an abortion now, yeah? Uh, yeah, basically, well, the, the legislation is still waiting to go through. So, but the basic idea was there was an amendment uh, to the constitution that basically said that unborn uh, babies have the same rights as a mother, even in the case of medical emergency. So, as you can imagine, that was kind of complicated because there was a lady in Galway who would say she she had uh, complications in labour, mm-hmm. and they knew the baby wouldn't make it, but they were refused to do anything about it because of the Eighth Amendment, and so she actually she passed away because of that. So that that was what really that was maybe what started the backlash uh, to the government was you know this is kind of unacceptable because in cases like this having no no support for women is is horrific so uh, that was that that's kind of where I, I guess the discussion began I think that was back in maybe 2014 2015 yeah around the same time that the the tomb uh, mass baby grave was discovered so I think yeah there was maybe a bunch of things happening at once and that's possibly i think that's usually how something gets in mm. to the public zeitgeist and maybe it, it when you're reading it and seeing it everywhere you're going to talk about it more and once you start talking about it you start seeing other people's opinions or hearing you know their their perspective on things and that's where i think it'll, it'll start to seep into your creative process yeah yeah um, and i think what's clever about what you've done with the parish is you've taken you've almost i feel like and 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 you can tell me if, if I'm kind of misreading it, is you've kind of given us an ensemble cast. Obviously, the film is definitely about Sarah Decker. There's no two, it is mm. her film. But so the, the, the cast that supports her, all those characters that you've come up with, they seem to represent a kind of point of view on the on the kind of cross where the crossroads island's at, almost, you know, in a sense. It makes me so happy to hear you say that. That, like, that tells me that you really, really got the film. That's, that's awesome. Um... Because I've I've been saying this to a few people recently is that like for me what the film is definitely about it's kind of on the top level it is about these very you know big social issues like the the man's baby graves and the abortion oh. rights and everything but then right below that that's probably the actual fundamental like you know foundation of the film is it's about communication and all these people who almost refuse to communicate with each other or don't try to communicate with each other and not see each other's perspectives or empathize with each other. Uh, it just causes everything to go to you know absolute shite, really. To be totally honest. But... Yeah, well, you only have to look at the UK right now in terms of the polemic that is Brexit. Um, I know it might not feel like a, I know subject-wise they're completely different, but in terms oh. of what, in terms of the principle you're talking about, a, an inability to communicate and therefore a refusal to communicate means you end up with just everybody shut the door. <laughs> Exactly. Or like what I saw here was was basically everybody was just shout. And I think I've seen it even amongst my my friends in the UK online and stuff where if people have views, they can be obviously you're very passionate about your views. But I think social media makes it almost far too easy to be almost like a zealot about them Mm. to the point that like people just kind of shout each other down on social media and don't kind of say, well, like, why do you why have you arrived at this perspective? And, you know, why? And like once you can kind of discuss things, then generally people can sometimes or more most of the time hmm. find some kind of common ground or commonality. 
But when when people just kind of roar and shout at each other, you're never going to respect the other person's opinion. You're just going to be like, well, fuck, you know, you're you're being an arsehole about this. I'm not listening to you. You know, totally, um, totally. Now you 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 talked about um, your con- your conversation that encouraged you to carry on with Joe Lynch. So in terms of the and th- and that was obviously led you were led there sort of by what you felt was like the negative experience of obviously I'm guessing you felt like the world hadn't embraced you and maybe the world was never going to embrace you so what's the point kind of thing you know in, in a very simplistic way I'm summing up um, but you didn't you didn't give up his words helped and you went on to make this fit this really great film so in terms of what you the positives you're able to take out of what's it called the three don'ts right? oh yeah that's it like um, I mean, the thing is, the three don'ts was actually like making it was a phenomenal experience. Like I, I loved every second of it. Uh, the cast and crew, they were all friends, and we had just an absolute, an absolutely brilliant time. Even through all the hardships, because we hit every kind of, um, you know, issue you could face making a feature film. But because we were all learning, we all knew we were at the same level and we were just trying to make something that we were happy with. Yeah. Um, it was it was just a great experience. But I think what happened was coming out the tail end of it, most people moved on to their next t- thing and kind of said, especially actors and people like that, it was it was very easy to say, well, you know, this was a thing and now I'm moving on to something else. Whereas I kind of found for maybe a year or a year and a half after it, you know, started to come out, I was stuck in the trenches trying to get, you know, better versions of it out there and, trying to find a distributor and trying to, you know, and I, I kind of felt like it was taking me away from the creative process. And that's kind of almost exactly how the conversation with Joe Lynch started was I said, like, I haven't written anything in, in a year, you know. Do you think, um, do you think that some of that is to do with, you know, the way people talk about, I can, I can relate it to music and the same for the film, but you know, first album versus second album, you're like, you spend your entire life making your first film and then your second yeah. film is what you do next. And you haven't got your whole life to draw on almost. It's like you, for some reason you go, I can't draw my whole life now. I have to be, I have to be this more experienced person. (laughs) It's, it's, I do think, I think as well as that, we're always, I think as filmmakers as well, there's always that, well, definitely even with music as well, but with, as filmmakers, you're always in that fear of the sophomore slump that everyone talks about that, Mm. you know, or your, your next film will have to be even better. Like, I guess in one sense with the three don'ts, I was a little bit lucky in that, like, because it maybe wasn't hugely successful, there wasn't as much pressure about the next thing. And, mm. and actually, another thing was the Three Bones was was a much bigger cast, and much uh, there was a lot more crazy set pieces. There was like fifteen locations, thirty characters. It was it was way too big for a first film. Mm. Um, so I think coming out of that, when I was starting to write the parish, I straight away kind of went that route that you're supposed to go for a first feature and say. And said, you know, I'd like to do something with a limited cast in a kind of majoritively one location, but like obviously the idea needs to be right and be good, but luckily it was. Um, but yeah, I do think that it, it can be hard, even even when you don't have the pressure, it can be hard, as you say, to try and to try and come up with even an idea because, like you say, you kind of go, "Have I ran the well dry on that first idea?" Or you know, <laughs> is there anything else in here? I tell, I mean, one thing for people listening who are like making their choices as to what they want to see. Um, one, one of the, um, one of the, one, this isn't the only thing, one of the impressive things that I found about, about the perished was, was, um, was, was the way that, the way it all works as, as a, as a, as a kind of metaphor for being on your own, you know, no matter how, because even though Sarah can speak to some people, Sarah Decker, that is, mm. is a character, the, the girl who goes through with the abortion, there is a sense at, at many junctures in the film that she is alone because essentially once at that young age, once you're kind of, you know, your parents, like, you know, I'm not your parents now. And you're like, wow, that's quite a big thing. So then you're yeah. almost like as a, as a young person, even though she's an adult, I mean, but she's only at college, you're kind yeah. of, you get the sense of her just floating in this abyss, which is well, what the fuck do I do now? I'm dealing a with the mentalness of going against what essentially the country I'm from and I was born in, thinks he's bad. <laughs> yeah, essentially just being made a pariah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. She's kind of made, she's kind of self-appointed herself. She's she's almost self-appointed as a, as a pariah through, through nothing that, that if she was living in Liverpool where she goes, she would not, nobody, yeah. would, nobody would make similar kind of proclamations about her. Yeah, and I think um, that was one of the things for me that the, probably the hardest thing about the film in a lot of ways was 
I kind of knew early on that I wanted Courtney McKeown to play Sarah Decker, um, but I just knew how how hard it would be for her in a lot of ways because yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot she, on her shoulders, isn't there? Exactly, and she she said it herself from day one that she was like, I really want to do every woman that has had to go through this in Ireland, you know, justice. And so, as I mean, I I I really wasn't kind of I wasn't saying you know I wasn't pushing this on her, but herself as an actress, she was very much like. She understood the gravity and the weight of of what she was, uh, the character she was portray- portraying, mm. and it's it's really cool that you said that about the loneliness element because there are certain scenes in the movie that definitely to me are meant to evoke that feeling, um, and I think one of the key ones, and I mean it's it's not too far into the film, so it's not a big spoiler or anything. It's not, but just when she's going to the airport to get the flight to the UK, that whole section to me just feels so desolate and alone and. And it's I've shown that to people that I know who have had got who have gone through that experience, um, 15, 20 years ago, and they watched that scene and they got very emotional because they were like, that is exactly what it was like to go through that, like that that feeling of love. They were like, even if you have someone with you, it doesn't matter. That's how alone you feel. Can, um, can I just because so, because obviously this is this is something that runs runs deep in, in in Irish culture and not being not being from Ireland, um, although. Not not far, you know. My my dad's family's like came into Ireland in the uh, in the tw- came in from Ireland in the twenties to Liverpool. Um, oh, brilliant! Um, the, um, and but I don't have that connection with with sort of what is twenty first end of the twentieth century sort of uh, Irish culture. Now, um, what I'm thinking is so when when the mass grave it'd be interesting for, for people listening when the mass graves was uncovered, like from a kind of how how much of a rumble did that send in terms of shock and awe, or was it was it like oh right yeah that, that's what we expected was the was 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 any was any of it kind of like it's just it's just the Catholic Church and that's you know we knew that was going on and here's confirmation or was it was it absolute shock we can't believe it went this bad it was it's a tricky one actually because because of all the obviously the clerical scandals and the abuse scandals over the years there's just been so many of those that I think there was definitely an underlying thought of, well, of course, we should have expected this. We should have known that mm. this was probably happening. I mean, one of the one of the things that have, has been talked about for maybe 20, 30 years, but there was never a confirmation of it until uh, all the stuff came out in tune, mm. was there was a belief that, and people had come back and said that they were, that this had happened to them, but there was this belief that the church had taken babies from unwed mothers and sold them to people in the United Kingdom and the United States. Mm. And this was kind of something that people thought was maybe a lot of religious people were like, oh, that's not true. Don't believe, you know, that's that's just people talking nonsense. Don't listen to that. But then um, when it all came out about tune, they obviously discovered records that proved that that was true as well. And there was not only was there all these these children that were, you know, basically discarded um, in, in such a horrific way, but there was also ones that had been just transferred and sold, like, as in for money, which is... Yeah, no it's, it's, it's kind of frightening, isn't it? It's like, it's just a good job they kept good records, or, you know, to show, yeah, yeah, which is kind true, of surreal. Right? Yeah, and uh, so, as I say, I I think for a lot of people, because I kind of think that Ireland is entering this kind of post-Catholic phase, is what I keep calling it, hmm. um, where most people of my generation, almost all that I can think of, are... I'm not saying that nobody's spiritual or that even that they don't believe in, in God, but a lot of people are anti-organized religion or anti... Yeah, I was going to say, so there's, there's, there's one thing to... I mean, there's, there's really no harm in any personal faith. You can believe in the fridge. No, you, absolutely you, you not. You can believe in the fridge's power if you want. But yeah. the, the minute you start imposing rules on your next-door neighbor because of the fridge's power, that's where it all starts to go a bit wrong. Um, yeah, and, and that was that was the thing that was so pervasive here for like so many years was just... Basically, the priest back in the 1950s and 60s, as as was actually very well documented in in Ashland's film, which was took place in that time frame, mm. uh, the Devil's Doorway. The, the the what the priest kind of said was law. Like you know, if the priest came in and said this, that, or next thing, people just took it as absolutely well. We have to. It it wouldn't matter what he said. It was just you couldn't. The police would would cover things up. You know, it was it was almost like it was almost like politicians in the U.S. You know, um, of that time. Uh, but it's but, but, but it's or, interesting. Or like I was saying earlier, extrapolating that that kind of that kind of general sort of consensus view that then the way that you're going to spin it off with your characters having the kind of 
I guess the combination of um, uh, what's the gay character's name? Sorry, my mind's gone blank. Oh, Davis. Dafford, right? Yeah. So he's he's kind of for, for obvious reasons the least judgmental of the law, in some senses. Um, yeah. But then, what I found interesting about Shane's character and Shane's character, you, I think you could take him anywhere in the world. Um, in his his want to take responsibility after the fact, um, yeah, and then be angry about not being asked to take responsibility, as if as if he could. I think that you know that's a that's not yeah. I don't think that's a uniquely sort of um, you know some sort of um, the feckless man who puts it around a bit. It's like that, that's yeah. that's the world over. You get feckless men who, who who like to put it about and don't like responsibility for it. But then when somebody has an abortion, they get all moral and uh, yeah. and begin to go. Oh no, no, I'd have been a good. I wanted a choice in this. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right, mate. Um, which I think is a powerful thing because um, you had you had the opposite, almost like the opposite viewpoint from with his sister. And I won't spoil that. That's not. Uh, yeah, that's not something. That's Rebecca, played by Lisa Terrell, and she's, in a weird way, she's possibly one of my favourite characters in the film, because I just, I, I feel like I don't have a favourite between her and Sarah, definitely not, like, but I love that they're effectively, like, opposite sides of the same coin. No, no, and, and I think that's, have... the balance of your film, it's like, because I was, I was watching it with my wife, and I was saying to her that, um, I was saying, I was saying, what do you think he's saying here, you know, it's, because <laughs> it, it's not like your film is saying having the choice to have an abortion or having an abortion is particularly a good or a bad thing. You're, you're saying... 100%. I'm so glad you... Yeah. Because I've had some people even come up to me and they haven't seen the film here in Ireland. People who were very hot-headed during the referendum hmm. come up saying, oh, this film's so pro-choice. You're such a pro-choice person. And, and I'm like... You haven't seen the film. It's genuinely, I tried my very best. When I wrote the first drafts of it, it was very pro-choice preachy because that, that is my own personal views. Hmm. But then as I redrafted and redrafted it, I was like, no, this can't be what it is about. It has to be about perspective because that's why we ended up in this situation where everyone is killing yeah, each other is yeah. because and, nobody's and, looking at perspective. And Sarah Decker's position is is this, this idea she's just carrying the weight of guilt almost of a country on her. Because that's all she's yeah. known, and that's that's a that's a kind of really abstract thing to try and imagine. So, if you're going to carry the guilt of a country, then it'll it'll come in the form it'll come in the form of how your imagination views the world. Is you will pay for a sin or something? You know, there'll be there'll be something in that that isn't necessarily a positive. Yeah, there's definitely it's it's. I mean, it's one of the things that obviously we're not going to get into spoilers and stuff, but. Uh, I will say that the film had, when we were shooting, the film went through three different endings because... Oh, really? And, and the one we ended up with in the edit was none of those. It was actually um, a, a different ending again, but it was... Well, it was talk, well talk me through that, Paddy, then, because I think that's an interesting thing for people to listen to. So you've got, you write a film, you produce a film, and then you edit a film. So what was hmm. it about the edit, then, that gave you this other answer? Well, what I will say is that, like, while we were on set, we filmed, as I say, three kind of different variations of the ending. And the first one was what was in the script. And mm. I actually, we were lucky enough to have Paul McAvoy um, and a few other people on set. Uh, Ariel Fisher, from uh, she was over visiting, um, she writes for Fangoria. Mm -hmm. And then we also had John Barkin from Dread Central. And the three of those, they were kind of like on-set consultants. And they kind of said, I think you could do something different here with the ending. And they gave, you know, they kind of took me aside and gave me a bit of feedback. And I said, I am not one to get, you know, pig edited about that stuff. Those people are there to try and help you. So I was like, that's really good advice. Let's try that. So we went back and we tried a second variation of that. And then yet again, it won't, this won't give anything away, but there's a little, there's a little thing in the mid credit scene um, that uh, was actually part of the original ending, but we cut it from the film. And um, that was another, well, it was part of, of one of the original endings. Um, and when it came to the edit, we had a certain ending in place. And every time I watched it, it came to the end and I felt like it was coming down too hard again in on one side. And the side I felt it was coming down on was kind of what we're just talking about right now, which is kind of like, is this a sin? Is this a punishment for a sin? Um, I really wanted it to end. My, my favorite horror films always end with some kind of lack of closure. Mm. As weird as that sounds, but like... To me, the horror films that affect me are the ones where I walk out of the theater and go, like, it's in my head. And I'm like, what happened five minutes after that? You know, um, 
And a really good example of that recently for me was was Midsummer. Me and my wife walked out after seeing it, and I was the whole drive back in the car. We were talking about what happened afterwards. And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And yeah, so I, I that's that when we were doing the edit, there was kind of a moment in one of those endings, and I was like, we need to call it there, like right in the middle of that, because that's going to leave enough ambiguity and you know. Um, for people to make up their own minds about how they feel it ended and not have me tell them, like, stamp something on their head and say, this is my viewpoint. They can kind of... My aim was that people will walk out of the cinema and be able to say, well, I think that the ending was this. And 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 yet again, have opposing viewpoints, but hopefully be able to talk them out instead of, you know, roaring shouting at each other. Yeah, no, I, my, my, you, say, you say that uh, your, your favourite your favorite character was the, the sister of Shane, but it was, for me, I, I, I thought it wasn't the main part of the film, it, it felt like it felt like the real sort of cornerstone for it was was the mother and father. Um, oh yeah, and, and they're and the, phenomenal. The fact they're not they're not even united yet. They are united in the outcome, but they're not united in 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 how they feel. Um, and and I can imagine that you've probably had centuries of, or if not at least decades of families that almost like must live in secret have relationships in secret. You know, like a father or a mother. Yeah. Who doesn't feel as as guilty or as embarrassed or whatever else it might be, or as going to hell because of what their daughter has or has not done? Um, yeah. And what's she called? Um, is it? Do I pronounce it? Noelle Clark. Yes, Noelle that plays Elaine, the mother. Yeah. Yeah. She is absolutely superb. Um, oh, she's she's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mother, so, I don't so know what I do, my mother is lovely. <laughs> so uh, it was, it was actually, I think, maybe a challenge trying to trying to write a character that that well, kind of scary. But well, well, well the writing the character, I'm going to say writing the character, though, but but obviously when you're getting you're directing someone to to, oh, yeah. to life, what was your conversations like with her, and and then and then what did she bring that you weren't expecting? What's what's amazing about Noelle is yet again she's a lovely person and she's a fantastic mother and she would never be like that. Um, which she actually says in a couple of the BTS interviews, she's like, I'm actually a really nice mother, I swear. <laughs> um, but Noel, uh, a lot of the conversation that came about was mainly just kind of like, I, I tried to instill in her that, that I didn't have to because she grew up in a generation with people like that, you know, mm. where it was this um, incredibly devout, you know, Catholicism that was fevering and, you know, almost like, as I say, being a zealot. Yeah. Um, and so she, I think, really tapped into that. We we did have some more scenes in the movie with the mother that kind of tapped a little bit more into into maybe why she's like, like this. But it just kind of it took away from the, the pacing of the movie. But it's a shame because she did some great work in those scenes, too. And um, but one of the things was Noel, just because she's typically played very mild mannered kind of people. um she really just wanted to go for it. And she was like, can I slap her for real? Please, please, can I slap her? And like, I, I'm looking going, Courtney, is it okay if no one else slaps you? Um, and uh, wow. in, in the concept trailer that we shot like a year before we made the film, she did. But then when we get to shoot the film, Courtney was like, no, my face is still sore from that last slap. Not a hope. Um, but then, so, but then, yeah. but then at the opposite of that then, so you've got, you've got, you've got Noelle, Turned up to eleven, and then you've mm. got. I'm trying to find his. Uh, what's what's the father? Oh, Connor. Oh, the, the the character is Richard Decker, but the the actor is Connor Lambert. He's a great actor. So, so Connor Lambert is that he's he's having. A, she's up to eleven, and he's having to play almost like on mute, almost like it's yeah. like it's what he doesn't say that that speaks volumes rather than what he does say. And it's it's a total inverse of their typical typecasting because Connor normally because he's a big tall kind of broad man gets gets cast as a very intimidating figure. Oh and really? Like he's, yeah, he's been cast in like Ripper Street and uh, you know Vikings and stuff as a very intimidating figure. Wow. And then in this, I, I didn't know that it was so funny. Before I cast him, I just thought when he did the audition tape straight away, I was like, oh, he's perfect. You know, he's like. He's like a hurt puppy dog. Like he's he's you know so so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's really powerful. Yeah, and then when I when I got to meet him and he told me that oh no, I'm almost always cast as like a big brooding, angry, scary, intimidating. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> like this kind of and I do love the fact that Noel is so petite and small, and Connor is so tall and broad, and their roles are so the inverse that she is the dominant one in the relationship, and it's very clear. Um, and I love I love of, I love the way you expose. The, the sort of duality of 
of a obviously mum Decker's religion is important to her. But mm. actually, when you boil it down, if you listen listening to what she actually says, she's really saying, "What's everyone else going to say?" It's not. Oh yeah. It, it isn't. It isn't about God judging her at the gates of heaven. That's the last thing on her mind. Oh yeah. And plus, when you think about it, she's actually saying to Sarah, "Go through with this. Go do this thing now. Just don't ever come back to me again." But like, so she is. She believes that this thing is totally moral and wrong, and should never. You know, it, it goes against all her beliefs. But she's now. She's gone from kind of. You know. If she was truly religious in that way, in my eyes, she'd be saying, you're not doing that, you're not going. But it's this idea of, no, 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 you go and get it done, but just don't tell anyone and don't come back here. Yeah. And that was actually all based on, I, I, I can't say who, but it's based on a true story that I, when I started to talk to people, when I was writing the film, mm. I spoke to a, a young woman, a close friend of mine, who had gone through this. And she, all the line where the mother leans down into her face and says, tell no one that that came specifically from that conversation. Wow. Um, so I found that a very powerful. Well, yeah, well, well it certainly it comes, it comes across as very real from, from, from a viewing mm. point of view. So congratulations on, on your choices you made there. Um, now, obviously for people listening to this, they're, 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 um, they're itching to know what the horror is. And obviously we've got this, this sort of creature thing that, that uh, supernatural element, um, do you want to talk about what your influences were in terms of the creature design and look and feel and then how, how you went about sort of blocking that and how you shot it? Because I felt like, I felt like you, you, you made some really sort of, um, what do you call it? Um, some fr- in terms of the way you shot it, you certainly made some frugal choices in terms of how much you were willing to give us because, yeah. because it was about, to me, it felt like you were trying to give us a, a sense of claustrophobia and, and the fear of Sarah, not not whoa, look at me, monster, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Because that's kind of the, the two, the two. Because that wasn't what the horror was, was it? You know, the horror wasn't look at the monster no, and be scared. The monster, actually, and it's something I keep saying as well, is that like I've always been attracted to the idea of the sympathetic monster. I've never liked kind of just straight up. Like you can enjoy a slasher movie with a Freddy or a Jason, and he, well, even Jason's got a sympathetic element, you know. But yeah, typically I'm not a huge fan of just out and out villains. Hmm. So when I took into account that this monster like is effectively, you know, the spirits of, of lost confused babies, because that's that's basically to give an, give an idea. Hmm. I, I thought I don't want that monster to be inherently evil. Um, well, it can, so, can it? I mean, even like you think exactly. Yeah. So I a lot of what I, I wanted to do with it was have it look horrifying Um but like have it move a lot of the movements that the creature has are kind of influenced by the way that real world babies kind of move, which is to crawl. And, um, obviously there's the mewling kind of sounds and things like that. But a big thing about the way we shot it was like you say, it, it, it actually wasn't normally when we shoot a certain way, it's because we're trying to hide stuff. Yeah. Um, whereas this time around, a lot of it was more, as you say, because we wanted to be showing, what Sarah is going through almost more than like the creature is. Yeah. It was something we, we get the, the, the visual feeling that you get into me anyway, was like, you're suffocating us with, with, as in, as in we are Sarah. <laughs> yeah. And, and even like a lot of the creatures shot low angle looking up and things like that, because it is to, as you say, it's almost filling the screen in places. Yes. Yes. It was um, really effective that really effective. And that's all down to Barry Faye. I have to say, because a lot of times like, especially on a smaller low budget film, it's, it's hard to get a lot of pre-production time and do previs and all that kind of stuff. So like me and Barry have been working together since 2015 and we just almost have, I think a lot of. Is this your cinematographer? This. Yeah. This is the director of photography. And he also yeah. was the producer on the film and okay. him and his fiance, Vash and Gil, they were the, the two producers. So what was, um, what was your conversation like then about the, in that sort of look and feel then? And, and what you, what, what was he bringing there then that you, that you, you that got what you wanted or got what the film needed? Well, a big, a big conversation we had right from the start was about lighting because that's something that Barry's very good at. But And usually on almost every other film to date, I've kind of gone, you know what, you know lighting better than me. You just do what you do and I'll just, and we'll shoot it. Hmm. But on this one, there was a lot more discussion about like the types of like color lighting and what we wanted it to evoke and feel. Um, and even just down to like, um, even, yeah, even the framing, there was a lot more, on this shoot, there was a lot more me saying, can we get a slider and push it in like this? Whereas before he might come to me and say, I've got a suggestion. And he still did that. Of course, I'm not, I'm not trying to take that away, but I think Barry was even a little bit shocked that on this, I was a lot more, I was a lot more 
sure of the shots that I wanted, especially when it came to the creature and almost all the dialogue driven scenes and things like that. It was kind of like, yeah, we'll get it on stakes and we'll do this and we'll do that. But like when it came to the creature, there was a lot of parts where I was like, I need a shot from behind here, looking up at Sarah with the creature moving. The, you know, mm. um, and one of the main things I just, I can't like, well, it's, it's not a big deal, but yeah, basically part of the creature's design um, and this might actually entice people to want to see the film, I guess, but uh, part of the creature's design is that there's like fingers, there's like a finger spine um, mm. element to it. And that was, that was yet again, one of the first visuals that popped into my head for the film and, and the amazing makeup uh, creature effects designer, uh, Becky Toberty did a phenomenal job with that. As soon as I told her the concept for it, she, she started doing the artwork and it was, it was amazing. But when I came to Barry about the cinematography for the creature, I said, I really want a lot of this, this spine because it's, it's got a, it, it adds to me anyway, it adds that feeling, that kind of tragic feeling. It's not, it looks scary, but when you actually think about what that is, it's it's yet again kind of traumatic and and horrifying, um, well, and and sad. I guess, yeah, I was going to say. Else. I mean, that's the, that's the thing about this is is that for me, it's you definitely give us that. There's obviously a sense of dread and there's a sense of confusion, which is like you know that's everything you need to know about the mm. uncanny, as it were, in 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 the kind of you know academic sense of horror. Um, yeah, but because we're not running away from things that are chasing us. It really is about the psychological, you know, existential side of what the horror is, as opposed to, he's got a knife, you know, or whatever, yeah. you know, it's like, it's not. And then something that kind of, something that I noticed as the film was getting, you know, as we were in post and we were all working on our individual parts and pulling stuff together. One of the things that I kind of noticed was that like the, the original cut for the film was an hour and 46 minutes long. And then we brought that down to an hour and 36 and then we got some feedback from friends of ours and we brought it down to like an hour and 29 hmm. and when we ended up at that kind of one hour 29 mark i felt that the rhythm to the film was exactly what i wanted right from the start which was i wanted the rhythm to be like pregnancy which is that like it, it can it, it has these lulls and these long periods or slow periods and then it has these very intense moments contractions hmm. and then it all builds to a big bloody messy climax um which uh haven't seen seen two of those yeah it's 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 an unpleasant thing <laughs> <laughs> it's the most beautiful thing in the world but it's unpleasant as all hell too indeed indeed <laughs> but uh yeah i think that was one of the key things was um working with the editor aaron walsh on finding that rhythm um was was a big factor and then uh, likewise with the composer Evan Murphy on the score and Max Borghese on the sound design there was just can I ask, can I ask you about the sound design because that was something that struck me yeah. while I was watching it because there was there was moments certainly in those kind of more I guess more restful bits of the film where I was I was kind of because I, I, I'm lucky enough to have like it all wired at home wired up to like my hi-fi and stuff so it's coming out of like gale four floor standard speakers and all that and stuff so when i watched it as best as i could um <clears throat> to emulate something resembling this a home cinema and um and i was sort of really feeling the sound of the film so right down to sort of like even when sarah was getting out of a car and hearing her feet on the hard, hard ground and stuff was all present um in in the, in the mix as i was watching H how much of that is is, is because it felt like, because obviously when we're in the house, um, and it's all, it all, you know, it gets crazy and, and and supernatural and stuff. All that goes away because there's lots of there's all these other sounds competing for your attention. But when there's when we've just got the real world, it was I felt like you were kind of making us ultra sensitive to every sound. That I, I like I can't take a lot of credit for sound design stuff because Max came in and really. I I'd never worked with him before. Uh, yeah. He'd done the sound for Book of Monsters, which played at uh, Fry Fest last he year. He did, yeah, yeah. Um, but he came in and kind of said, is it okay if I do a pass of this, like, just myself? And I was like, of course. Like, you know what you're doing. Feel free. I was like, if you do need anything, just give me a shout. And But then he did a pass. And, I mean, normally I'll go through when, when you know, uh, Barry sends me a pass of the color grade or Evan sends me a pass of the score. And I'll come back with, like, a wall of notes of, like, can we change this? Can we alter that? I think when I got that first pass, I sent back, like, five notes. And they were minimal things. Mm. Um, because he just really got it. Like, he really understood the moments to me that mattered to, to it, like you just said, the, to, it kind of grounds it massively in, 
in a kind of a sense of realism. Mm. Um, but also, he in that first pass, the only thing that was a major sticking point for me was when she goes through the airport, I didn't want there to be the same level of sound design because I really wanted that feeling of echoness or of, of, of loneliness to echo. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. And so I think that that's the turning point for the sound design is actually when she goes into the airport and then it kind of all dials back. And then I think from there on, you're right, it kind of, it is all a bit tuned back because now all of a sudden what's going on in her head when she comes back from the UK is creating all these other things that are, as you say, now vying for her attention. Even little things like when she's driving in the car with David and she sees something out the window, hmm. like suddenly that's like a big, you know, impactful moment. Whereas before that might, you know, mightn't have been, Mightn't have been as much so. I haven't thought about this when yeah. I watched it, but it's like it is. It is like the fucking airport's like a bloody metaphor, isn't it? You yeah. You go away to have an abortion, and then you come back to your country reborn without a baby, which is kind of fucking awful, given what you know you're about to receive as. In yeah. terms of yeah, the, it's, that is real. It was one I'd, of those things. I've thought of it that way before. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things where yet again, from talking to a lot of people who had been through the experience. Um, They've talked about how, you know, they, they've done this 15, 20 years ago and they've never told anyone, or maybe me and one or two other people. Good Lord. And they've told me that, you know, they've gone and seeked, you know, support for like psychological support and things like that because, and like they couldn't even, up until maybe the referendum came up, they didn't even feel like they could do that because they thought, oh, if I tell anyone, even like a psychologist, you know, they, they'll look at me this way or they'll think I'm... Well, when the risk, when the risk, when the risk is shame on your family, which is a fucking abstract nonsense. Yeah. Then you don't know who you can tell, can you? So, so the idea of internalizing it to such a degree that you just tell nobody to be safe. Um, yeah. And, and, and I thought you played it off well with the with the gay character and the whole idea of it's great to be gay in Ireland now. <laughs> <laughs> it, that's, that's that's actually something. Yeah. That, and Paul Fitzgerald that plays David. I he he was one of the revelations to me in this. Um, I just thought he. He's possibly the only character in a lot of ways that brings any kind of um, levity or just kind of like, you know, makes it a bit more like it, it, there's a couple of moments where he just breaks the tension or the bleakness and just makes it a little bit fun. Yeah. And you kind of need that character or Sarah definitely needs that character. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Why he's there. Um, but yeah, like David was almost to some extent, yeah, meant to be somewhat of a representation of we, we dealt with the marriage rights five years ago. Hmm. Um, and that was very much a different referendum because there was very few people coming out saying, you know, oh, no, down with that sort of thing by comparison, you know. So and th but then at the time of the referendum, there was a lot of people conflating the two issues and saying, well, I'm all for gay rights, but I disagree. With, and it's like they're totally different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I've, I've made this concession. So I'm not... And they're all concessions. So therefore, I'm not making any more. It's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And And... I, I kind of wanted to have David be that character that like he could never truly empathize with her a hundred percent in this situation because he will never have to go through it um, himself. Yeah. But also even the fact that um, kind of there's a scene in the film where she's kind of gay or like kind of trying to get a read off him about like his experiences. But what we can gauge from that straight away is that really she's not really interested in his experiences. She, she, she's trying to relate it to her experiences and he kind of doesn't get that. No, um, and it's, it's, it's and a lovely, it's lovely. It's a very, it's a very human, very, they're very human moment. So uh, again, congratulations on sort of capturing that. Now look, let's tell people when and where they can see your film. Yeah, um, of course. It's uh, August 26th. It's going to be in the, at Frightfest, which is just mind blowing to me. This has been my dream for the last four years. Um, so yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Is so it a big, August, is, is it a big premiere at Frightfest? It's the world premiere. Well, so, come on, let's yeah. let's 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 uh, let's give that an applause then. Come on, um, and uh, go on. Sorry, I'll be in the Phoenix for the whole thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it only uh, gives it only gives me to say, well, thank goodness you listened to the words of encouragement for Joe Lynch, and we got oh. to see and we got to see your second film, The Perished. I, one of my dreams for the film is like hopefully as it goes on its festival run, if it gets the chance to go anywhere stateside, and if Joe has any chance to be there. I just can't wait to sit down and be like, see this movie, like this movie exists because you told someone not to give up. Um, because to me that, that, as I say, I think 
a lot of people don't realize it, but it, they need that push to maybe just get them over that because filmmaking is hard. It's so hard. You know this yourself as a filmmaker. It's, it's just an incredibly difficult process. So when somebody that you really admire gives you a nudge or a push, it, it can literally make all the difference. Um, no, totally also no. Onto that, also onto that, I just got to say very quickly that um, a huge shout out to all the cast and crew of the parish. I've I've listed a few of the people out and I'm not going to try and list everyone because every time I do that, I leave someone out and then I get in loads of trouble. But like, uh, as I've said, I mean, Courtney Paul uh, and Lisa Terrell, Noel, uh, Connor and Fiek and Oshin, who were the kind of leads of the film, they all, to me, did a phenomenal job and they were incredible to work with. And then obviously, as I've listed out the post-production team, and my biggest of thanks to Barry Fahey and Vashon Gill, the producers, because literally from the minute I came up with that concept of the creature crawling in the room, um, they've believed in the project and done everything they could to help get it here. So, um, And so here is August 26th, uh, Monday, August 26th, 3.30 p.m. in the Prince Charles Screen 2 at Freudfest. So. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks very much for your time. Oh, no, thank you, Stuart. This is an absolute, this, this was brilliant. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Thank you.